Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Tuesday, November 29th, 2022, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. China cracks down amid unprecedented COVID protests. Newspapers urge the U.S. to drop Assange charges. At least 14 are killed in a Somali hotel siege. The U.S. reportedly mauls 100-mile weapons for Ukraine. Trump is criticized for meeting with far-right Nick Fuentes. Musk says he'll back DeSantis for president. The Buffalo mass shooter pleads guilty to murder. Police bust a cocaine super cartel in Dubai and Europe. The U.S. allows Chevron to pump oil in Venezuela. China is portrayed as a military space threat. And the World Health Organization renames monkeypox to mpox. Our top story comes from China as security is tightened amid widespread COVID protests. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Guardian, Bloomberg, Reuters, and BBC News. Police on Monday were out in force across China in an attempt to quell protests against COVID restrictions that rocked the nation over the weekend in what is being characterized as one of the largest acts of civil disobedience in decades. This comes as on Saturday, China reported a record high of 39,791 new COVID infections. Despite the spike in infections, protests erupted against the country's zero-COVID policy, which includes prolonged lockdowns and quarantines. Data released by the National Bureau of Statistics on Sunday suggests that China's economy may be shrinking due to the COVID response. As a sign of economic challenges, China's industrial profits reportedly fell 3%, while profits for manufacturers slid 13.4% in the first 10 months of 2022. In another indicator, Japanese financial firm Nomura cut its gross domestic product forecast for China's full-year growth to 2.8%, down from 2.9%, indicating a slow and turbulent COVID reopening process for the Chinese economy. Official state media pledged it would implement measures for a highly efficient pandemic control and economic development, as protests roiled across different locations including Beijing, Shanghai, Urumqi, and Hong Kong. In Shanghai, protesters shouted, Communist Party, step down. Xi Jinping, step down. The unprecedented protests, which follow violent demonstrations at an iPhone factory in Zhengzhou last week, began after a prolonged COVID lockdown was blamed for hampering rescue efforts when an apartment in the western city of Urumqi caught fire, resulting in 10 deaths. A vigil for the victims was held Monday night. Thank you, Scott, for those facts. During this podcast, we always extract the spins from the facts. And for our first spin, we have the anti-China narrative coming from BBC News. China's fixation with its zero-COVID policy has triggered historic discontent among its residents who grapple with skyrocketing inflation, employment uncertainties, and rising fears of a global recession. The rise in COVID infections proves the zero-tolerance approach has failed to contain the virus. The PRC must ease restrictions, spend resources on intensive care hospitals, and stop upending its citizens' normal lives. This will help ease dissent and bring the economy back on track. And we've got a pro-China narrative from People's Daily. It's imperative for China to stick to zero COVID measures to save lives, 
stabilize the economy in the long term, and achieve a balance between virus control and socioeconomic development. This has been a challenging road for the PRC citizenry, but solidarity against the virus will help enhance safety and economic security. You know, it said in the top of the story that police were out in force across China, and I was trying to picture what that would be like in China, you know, with the most populated country in the world. I mean, is it proportional when it comes to the size of their police force? I mean, I can't imagine how many police officers that would that would require. Right. Yeah, I feel like it's it's uh, what is it a uh, inverse square or something, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> right. Like the more people there are, you almost need more cops per person because you know maybe one cop could stop four people, but right ten cops can't stop forty people. Exactly. And then forget about it if there's four million people or or whatever. Yeah. yeah it's a, it's a, I feel like it's a bubbling cauldron that's ready to boil over. It's, it's, uh, it's I, crazy. I wouldn't want to be a part of it. A very, very top down state controlled government works for some things, but if the people aren't having it, that's, yeah, good luck. Exactly. Good luck. In our next story, news groups urge the United States to drop charges against Assange. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Guardian, Reuters, New York Times, and Al Jazeera. Twelve years on from publishing the Cablegate disclosures alongside WikiLeaks, The New York Times, The Guardian, Le Monde, Der Spiegel, and El Pais on Monday issued a joint letter urging the United States government to drop its prosecution of WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange. Assange has been incarcerated in Britain since 2019. Before that, he spent much of the past decade under house arrest or as a political asylee in Ecuador's London embassy. He is wanted in the U.S. on 17 charges of spying and on an allegation of conspiring to commit computer intrusion. If extradited, he could face up to 175 years in a maximum security penitentiary. In addition to documents from the Iraq and Afghanistan wars, the charges against Assange relate to WikiLeaks' 2010 publication of the Cablegate files. More than 250,000 U.S. diplomatic cables from American embassies all over the globe. In their letter, the five publications wrote that the files, quote, disclosed corruption, diplomatic scandals, and spy affairs on an international scale, and stated that prosecuting a journalist for disclosing these documents violates the First Amendment in the U.S. and sets a dangerous precedent. Quote, obtaining and disclosing sensitive information when necessary in the public interest is a core part of the daily work of journalists, they said. If that work is criminalized, our public discourse and our democracies are made significantly weaker. All right, we've got three narrative spins on this story. Narrative A comes from Al Jazeera. Assange is a journalist and should have the protections journalists possess in any functioning democracy to reveal corruption and deceit at the highest levels of government. The attempted prosecution of Assange is not only a grave injustice, but a serious threat to press freedoms more broadly gives us narrative B for this story. Assange is not a journalist. He is a spy leading an intelligence agency that has provided sensitive information to the enemies of the U.S. He doesn't care about national security or about the lives he has put at risk, even having deemed them, quote, collateral damage. Suggesting constitutional rights should protect his un-American and illegal activities is a gross misrepresentation. And from time to time, we have statistics-based nerd narratives brought to us by the Metaculous Prediction community. This one says there's a 50% chance that Julian Assange will be extradited to the U.S. before June of 2023. 
Tragedy in Somalia as at least 14 are killed in an Al-Shabaab hotel siege. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Arab News, France 24, BBC News, New York Times, The Citizen, and Voice of America. At least 14 people were reportedly killed and dozens more injured after Al-Shabaab militants armed with explosives and guns laid siege to a hotel popular with government officials in Somalia's capital, Mogadishu. Somali forces ended the siege after a more than 20-hour battle. The attack began when Al-Shabaab fighters stormed the Villa Rose Hotel in the Somali capital on Sunday. While fighting between CIA and Turkish-trained Somali troops and the militants continued on Monday, security forces reportedly rescued dozens of civilians and officials, including the fisheries minister. Meanwhile, the al-Qaeda-affiliated group claimed responsibility for the hotel siege in the previously considered secure central Mogadishu district near the presidential palace. The African Union Transitional Mission in Somalia, or ATMIS, condemned the attack and welcomed the swift response by Somali security forces. The latest attack comes after Somalia's Ministry of Information claimed Saturday that more than 100 al-Shabaab fighters were killed following an operation by the Somali National Army, its international partners, and allied clan militias. Somali troops, augmented by clan militias and occasionally African Union troops and U.S. strikes, have made advances in the fight against al-Shabaab in recent months. In August, at least 21 people were killed and 117 wounded in a 30-hour al-Shabaab siege of the Hayat Hotel in Mogadishu. This was followed by al-Shabaab's deadliest attack in five years on October 29th, when twin bombings outside the Ministry of Education killed at least 100 people and injured more than 300. Scott, thank you for the facts of that story. Let's take a look at the spins that have emerged. And the first one is an establishment critical narrative, and it comes from the conversation. The recent string of devastating al-Shabaab attacks proves that the new government's military approach to defeat the group with the help of Western allies, African Union troops, and local militias don't promise success. Moreover, the weak federal government lacks public legitimacy. What is needed now are direct talks between Mogadishu and al-Shabaab and political power sharing to consolidate the government's authority. We've also got a pro-establishment narrative. This one comes from Bloomberg. The latest terrorist attacks are indeed a setback for the Mahmoud government and its allied clan militias. But that doesn't diminish the fact that the offensive against the Islamists has recently yielded a number of successes, with al-Shabaab being driven out of key regions of Somalia with U.S. military support. Even if victory isn't yet within reach, and further military and political efforts are necessary, the government is on the right track. As we take a look at day 278 of the Ukraine conflict, as the U.S. mulls arming Ukraine with 100-mile-range weapons, and here are the facts, as agreed upon by Reuters, Ukraine Forum, Pravda, Donetsk News Agency, and Guardian. According to reporting from Reuters, the Pentagon is considering a Boeing proposal to arm Ukraine with ground-launched small-diameter bombs, or GLSDB, munitions capable of traveling a 94-mile or 150-kilometer range. While the U.S. has reportedly rejected proposals for the 185-mile or 297-kilometer range ATACMS missile, GLSDBs, produced jointly by Boeing and Saab, would allow Ukraine to hit targets previously out of reach and disrupt Russia's supply lines near the rear. 
The Pentagon and Boeing declined to comment on Reuters' report. Meanwhile, as Ukraine continued to struggle with energy shortages, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said in his nightly address on Sunday that the situation was stabilizing, stating that only scheduled outages would be in effect. He thanked, quote, thousands of people who worked round the clock all over our state to restore light, water, heat, and communication. However, Zelensky warned Ukrainians to prepare for further Russian attacks, saying, we understand that the terrorists are preparing new strikes. We know that for sure. And as long as they have missiles, they won't stop, unfortunately. On Monday, renewed Russian attacks were reported in Sumy, Donetsk, Dnipropetrovsk, and Zaporizhia, in addition to Mykolaiv, Kharkiv, and Kherson. Ukrainian officials reported that two civilians were killed and four others were injured in Donetsk, while one person was killed and three more were injured in Zaporizhia. One civilian was killed and two more were injured in Kherson, while two people were injured in Kharkiv. Pro-Russia officials from the Donetsk People's Republic reported that three civilians were killed and seven more were injured in Ukrainian attacks on the region for the same time period. Elsewhere, the foreign ministers of Estonia, Finland, Iceland, Latvia, Lithuania, Norway, and Sweden all arrived in Kyiv on Monday. Lithuania's Gabrielius Landsbergis said they were there to show, quote, full solidarity with Ukraine in the face of Russia's alleged, quote, barbaric brutality. As this conflict seems to heat up more and more, we have an anti-Russia narrative from The Guardian. The only way Ukraine can conduct meaningful negotiations is if Russia loses this war and loses decisively. The West must help Kyiv achieve this outcome as it would prevent countries like China from having imperial ambitions of their own and further threatening world peace. Scott, thank you for that. Pro-Russian narrative coming from TASS. Russia welcomes the efforts of the Vatican and some other countries to be intermediaries in the war. However, Kyiv has not fundamentally changed its position of trying to defeat Russia on the battlefield, so such negotiations are not possible at this stage. And we have another nerd narrative. This one says there's a 2% chance that Putin and Zelensky will meet to discuss the peaceful resolution of the Russian-Ukraine conflict before the year 2023. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. Trump is criticized for meeting with far-right Nick Fuentes. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Daily Mail, Guardian, Daily Wire, NBC, Business Insider, and Newsweek. A number of prominent Republicans have joined Democrats in criticizing former President Donald Trump for meeting with Nick Fuentes, a political commentator accused of being a white nationalist and anti-Semite at his Mar-a-Lago residence. The meeting occurred last week during a dinner Trump was hosting between himself and Kanye West, who has generated controversy recently due to comments that have largely been perceived as anti-Semitic. According to Trump, Fuentes accompanied West without his prior knowledge. Trump, who recently announced his 2024 presidential bid, also said that the only reason he met with West in the first place was to help him, calling the rapper a seriously troubled man. Representative James Comer, Republican of Kentucky, criticized Trump over the meeting, stating that the former president certainly needs better judgment in who he dines with. Comer also claimed that he would have avoided engaging with West or Fuentes. Governor Asa Hutchinson, Republican of Arkansas, also criticized Trump, saying, The last time I met with a white supremacist, it was in an armed standoff. So no, I don't think it's a good idea for a leader that's setting an example for the country or the party to meet with a vowed racist or anti-Semite. 
In contrast, former Trump strategist Steve Bannon argued that the blame should be put on Trump's staff for allowing the meeting to happen. He said the dinner was intended to insult Trump and make it appear that the second-time presidential hopeful lacks judgment. Scott, thank you for the facts of that story. Three spins emerging, beginning with a pro-Trump narrative coming from Breitbart. This dinner was a mistake, but Trump simply didn't realize that Fuentes would be attending. Trump and West have had a strong relationship for years, and the former president just wanted to help a friend who is clearly going through an episode of bad mental health. Trump doesn't endorse the views of people like Fuentes. And we have a Democratic narrative from USA Today. Trump is yet again flirting with white nationalism, though he and his supporters are claiming that he didn't know that Fuentes would be attending the dinner. Meeting with West after his recent anti-Semitic remarks was a bad move anyway. Republicans need to disavow people like Fuentes and West and make clear that racism and anti-Semitism have no place in the GOP. And we have a statistics-based nerd narrative on this story as well. This one says that if the 2024 U.S. presidential election is Trump versus Biden, there is a 38% chance that Trump will win, according to the Metaculous Prediction community. Elon Musk making the news again as he says he'll back DeSantis in the 24 presidential run. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Breitbart, Guardian, and Business Insider. Elon Musk, billionaire owner of Twitter and CEO of Tesla and SpaceX, tweeted on Friday that he would support Republican Ron DeSantis if the Florida governor were to run for president in 2024. He wrote, quote, my preference for the 2024 presidency is someone sensible and centrist. I had hoped that that would have been the case for the Biden administration, but have been disappointed so far. When asked if he'd support DeSantis, Musk wrote, quote, yes. DeSantis, who hasn't announced his intention to run for president, could get a boost from the Musk endorsement in a potential showdown with former President Donald Trump, who launched his campaign earlier this month. DeSantis is coming off a landslide re-election in this month's midterms. Musk voted Republican for the first time during a special election in Texas in June and said at the time he was leaning towards DeSantis for 2024. DeSantis responded to that comment by joking he would welcome support from African-Americans about the South African-born Musk. Musk's Twitter recently reinstated Trump's account, which was suspended after the January 6, 2021 riots at the U.S. Capitol. Trump has declined to rejoin Twitter, a decision Musk said he's fine with. Believe it or not, it's a political story with political narratives. Let's start with the Republican narrative from PJ Media. Musk's Twitter takeover has been a boon for Republicans, who were too often silenced under previous management. It's great to see him involving himself in the party's politics with his endorsement of DeSantis, even after showing his support for Trump by ending the former president's egregious ban. Democrats will soon regret their efforts to drive Musk away. And we counter that with a Democratic narrative coming from Washington Post. Musk, who seems to have completed his rightward political turn, isn't being shy about his preferences. But this revelation isn't about Democrats. It's about Trump. Musk knows Trump's to blame for the wave of Republican losses in the midterms, and the Twitter owner wants to send a message to the party to split from being the losing formula and former president. The Buffalo mass shooter pleads guilty to murder. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Fox News, New York Times, Axios, CNN, and ABC News. On Monday, Peyton Gendron pleaded guilty to all charges filed in a grand jury indictment against him. Gendron, a white man, 
is accused of opening fire at a grocery store in a predominantly black neighborhood, killing 10 people and injuring three others in May. Gendron was indicted on 25 counts, including murder, and one count of domestic terrorism motivated by hate, which carries a penalty of life in prison without the possibility of parole. He will also face federal hate crime charges led by the U.S. Department of Justice. Gendron allegedly drove more than 200 miles to carry out his attack, where 11 of the 13 people shot were black. He used a semi-automatic rifle that was inscribed with racist language and a white supremacist symbol. He live-streamed the mass shooting on the social media platform Twitch. In a court filing by the Western District of New York, it was stated Gendron's motive for the mass shooting was to prevent black people from replacing white people and eliminating the white race and to inspire others to commit similar attacks. The investigation revealed that Gendron's social media posts and manifesto demonstrated he had been planning the attack for months and had visited the supermarket several times. During the shooting, Gendron pointed his gun at a white man but did not fire and said, sorry, because the man was white. Following the hearing, Flynn said, thank God the families and the victims who survived this and the community don't have to endure a long protracted trial. He went on to say, nothing will ever bring back the 10 beautiful people who lost their lives on that day. Scott, thanks for the facts of that story as we take a look at the spins. And the Democratic narrative is the first one coming from New York Times. Congress needs to step up for the American people and enact legislation that will strengthen efforts to stop domestic terrorism. It starts by expanding gun background checks and passing common sense gun reforms to prevent tragedies like the Buffalo shooting from happening elsewhere. We've got a Republican narrative from Daily Mail. This is no time to be talking about gun control or anything political. This is a time to allow the families to heal and for the shooter to be brought to justice. Including the Waukesha tragedy that saw Daryl Brooks kill six people with a car. No form of gun control could stop an act of crime like that. And our third narrative for this story is coming from USA Today. Irresponsible social media platforms allowed radicalizing videos to be viewed and permitted like-minded individuals to communicate. In addition, those who sold and manufactured his weapon and body armor should be punished. The circle of responsibility should be extended to all stakeholders. Cocaine super cartel in Dubai and in Europe. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, BBC News, RTE, Associated Press, and Vice. At least 49 people have been arrested across Dubai and Europe as a result of an international operation aimed at dismantling a drugs super cartel. According to Europol, who conducted the investigation, the group controlled a third of Europe's cocaine trade, known as Operation Desert Light. The two-year-long investigation reportedly resulted in the seizure of more than 30,000 kilos of drugs and the collaboration of authorities in Spain, France, Belgium, and the Netherlands, and the United Arab Emirates. Europol also hinted that some of the suspects arrested in the case were, quote, high value, including two people detained in Dubai, and, according to the agency, one Dutch suspect, who they described as, quote, an extremely big fish. Reports suggest that the suspects include a 37-year-old man with dual Dutch and Moroccan nationality, who stands accused of importing thousands of kilos of cocaine into the Netherlands between 2020 and 2021, and a 40-year-old dual Dutch-Bosnian national. Although the news is reflective of the fact that 
Record amounts of cocaine are currently being seized in Europe. The drug is more widely available on the continent than it's ever been before. The amount seized in the region in 2020 was up by 6% on the previous year at 214 tons. In a statement about the case, Europol said that there is, quote, no safe haven for drug lords. Thanks for the facts on this story, Eric. We have a pro-establishment narrative from Daily Mirror. The execution of this operation shows that drug lords cannot continue to illicitly accumulate wealth and power unchecked in today's Europe. Europol have pulled off an astounding victory and dented the illegal drugs market irreparably in the process. And the establishment critical narrative coming from unheard. Tackling organized crime is certainly part of the solution to the drug problem. But the legalization of illicit substances would be a far more effective way to undermine their power and profits. Politicians and government agencies need to stop thinking so much about their public image and more about effective policy. It's really hurt your business, hasn't it, Scott? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. This, these uh, these <laughs> Europol's been a thorn in my side for many years. I just finished hollowing out my uh, my volcano lair too. This oh, really, oh, really man. put a crimp on me. Yeah, I plus with interest has. rates, good yeah. lord. Yeah. The U.S. allows Chevron to pump oil in Venezuela. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by Time Magazine, Financial Times, Politico, CNN, Fox News, and Bloomberg. On Saturday, the U.S. Department of the Treasury granted Chevron Corporation a six-month license authorizing the U.S. company to resume oil extraction and exports from its oil fields under joint ventures with Venezuela's state-owned company Petróleos de Venezuela S.A., or PDVSA. The license prevents PDVSA from receiving profits from Chevron's oil sales. The relaxation of oil sanctions represents a departure from the Trump-era policies against Venezuela's leader, Nicolas Maduro. Since 2019, Chevron was allowed to maintain its assets in Venezuela, but not to export crude oil or expand operations in the country with the world's largest known oil reserves. While the move could add supply to the global oil market ahead of a December 5th deadline for tightened sanctions on Russian petroleum, a U.S. senior administration official denied that the Treasury's Office of Foreign Assets Control issued the limited license in response to energy prices. The authorization comes as the Venezuelan government and opposition coalition on Saturday announced an agreement on humanitarian aid and further negotiations. The pact focused on the country's 2024 elections amid ongoing economic and political turmoil. U.S. officials had previously offered to ease sanctions and free some Venezuelan nationals from U.S. prisons contingent on continued talks and agreements to strengthen democracy in the South American country. This decision also allows U.S. oil service providers Halliburton, Schlumberger Limited, Baker Hughes, and Weatherford International PLC to resume operations. Chevron is prohibited from doing business with Iran as well as Russian-owned or controlled companies in Venezuela under the new license. Those were the facts, and we have several spins to shed some light on, beginning with a Republican narrative coming from Daily Caller. It's a bad policy for the Biden administration to allow other companies to pump oil in Venezuela amid its efforts to push the U.S. oil industry offshore. Domestic shale oil is much more environmentally friendly than heavy Venezuelan crude oil. Yet Washington prefers to favor an authoritarian regime over allowing new drilling leases in the U.S. 
and the New York Times brings us the democratic narrative. While solving Venezuela's complex crisis still requires a lot of effort, recent developments show that all parties are finally moving in the right direction. Allowing Chevron to resume pumping oil in Venezuela isn't related to soaring energy prices, as the U.S. is focused on restoring democracy. This is why the U.S. can revoke it if Maduro breaks his commitments. And we have a nerd narrative for this story. It says there's a 50% chance that Venezuela will produce at least 821,000 barrels of oil in 2022. And that is according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. In our next story, according to U.S. officials, China is posing increasing military space threat. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, CNBC, Newsbud, Minmin TVCP, and Independent. On Monday, Nina Armagno, the director of staff of the U.S. Space Force, stated that rapid advancements in China's military capabilities pose growing threats to American dominance in outer space. Admitting that the progress Beijing has made was, quote, stunningly fast, Armagno revealed at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute that it was, quote, entirely possible China could catch up with and overtake the U.S. in space capabilities. Yi Peijian, head of China's Lunar Exploration Program, has compared the Moon and Mars to islands in the South China Sea. Armagno described China as the only country that intends to transform the international order while also having the capacity. Armagno also warned that China, together with Russia, had recently performed, quote, reckless missile tests, whose byproducts are a threat to the financial and scientific pursuits, as well as the safety of, quote, all nations. China is set to launch the Shenzhou-15 mission from the Zhuquan Satellite Launch Center on Tuesday as part of a six-month program to finish building China's space station. The U.S. has recently completed the delayed launch of Artemis-1, with intentions for astronauts to return to the moon later in the decade. All right, we've got the standard pro and anti-narratives on this story. Let's start with the pro-China narrative from Global Times. China is at the start of a new operational stage in space. The near-final construction of a state-of-the-art China space station shows China's growing strength in the field. Despite this, as seen through joint projects with the UN and the European Space Agency, alongside the fact that the new space station is open to all UN member states, China is more than willing to engage in international cooperation as Beijing's presence continues to grow. And we have an anti-China narrative coming from Wall Street Journal. Today, the U.S. is in a new space race, but this time it's against China, and experts are rightly worried. If China becomes the dominant space power in the next two decades, economic and national security will be at serious risk. Whoever dominates space will determine the future, and we must abandon the fantasy that all nations will work together. Given what we know of China's behavior in differing circumstances, the space race must be won by the U.S. to ensure the future of freedom in the 21st century. And our final story, the WHO renames monkeypox to mpox. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the South China Morning Post, Politico, CNN, BBC News, and Fox News. The World Health Organization, or WHO, has announced that monkeypox will now be referred to as mpox amidst controversy that monkeypox is racist and stigmatizing. For the next year, both names will be used before monkeypox is phased out. Scientists and experts have encouraged the name change since the beginning of the most recent outbreak, fearing that the stigma from the name would discourage people from getting tested, vaccinated, and seeking treatment. 
Stigmatization has reportedly particularly impacted men who have sex with men, as well as black and Hispanic people. The name change comes as pressure mounted from the Biden administration, who privately warned that if the WHO did not act soon, the U.S. would act unilaterally. The administration advised the WHO that their inaction was negatively impacting the U.S.'s MPOX vaccination campaign. MPOX was first named monkeypox by researchers in Denmark in 1958. Other diseases that could be considered racist or stigmatizing include Japanese encephalitis, German measles, Marburg virus, and Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, but there has been no mention of name changes. The latest outbreak is still classified as a public health emergency of international concern by the WHO, its highest level of alert. The classification begins a coordinated response to funding global data sharing and vaccine and treatment development. Until May of 2022, MPOX was believed to only trigger large outbreaks in Central and West Africa. However, more than 80,000 cases have been reported in countries that haven't previously reported large outbreaks, triggering the public health emergency declaration. Scott, thank you for the facts of that story. We have two spins, beginning with Narrative A coming from NPR Online News. Monkeypox should be renamed for two reasons. First, the long history of the world referring to black people as, quote, monkeys, creates a dangerous racist stigma that undermines public health initiatives. Second, the current name makes the virus sound like transmission only occurs between monkeys, which is factually incorrect. This hampers the world's ability to control and respond to the outbreak. And Narrative B comes from City Journal. The obsession with renaming monkeypox has detracted from the world's ability to combat the virus and snuff out the outbreak. The concerns about the virus's name and the history of racial stereotyping are well-intended, but there has been no evidence that stereotyping in connection with the outbreak is taking place. The use of images showing black people with lesions, for example, does not create a stigma, and obsessing over the virus name draws more attention than is warranted. Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Tuesday, November 29th, 2022. Each day, we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. If you'd like more information on Improve the News, visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Eric Steiner inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News.